Hi, this is Megan McHugh, and this is the podcast of Triple R Zero G, a weekly radio show exploring science fiction, fantasy, and historical. Zero G is broadcast live on Triple R from Melbourne, Australia, every Monday. Hope you enjoy the podcast, and feel free to get in touch with us via our Facebook page or the Triple R website. Yes, hello and welcome to a very special Zero G. So today for International Women's Day, uh, I've given Rob the boot out of the Zero G ship. No, he left willingly. He left willingly. So have um, unceremoniously shown him the door just for today. And so I'm doing a bit of a takeover and I'm going to talk about some topics that I feel are maybe in line with um, today, mainly a bit of a focus uh, on. So the first thing we'll look at is a bit of a focus on some female directors. And then later in the show, I want to talk a little bit about, because we've been on such a murder mystery bent lately on Zero G, I thought it would be kind of fun to talk a little bit about one of my favourite authors, problematic though she, she may be sometimes, uh, Agatha Christie and some of my favourite of her novels. So we're going to dig into that a little bit later with a real focus on some female creators. But firstly, I did just want to um, prep the next little segment with a little bit of a nostalgic theme. Hello, darling. This is Elvira, Mistress of the Dark, stacking Z's on Zero G. That was, of course, the theme song for Lois and Clark, The New Adventures of Superman, classic TV show, bit of a throwback there. Uh, you are listening to Zero G. I am Megan McHugh. No Rob Jan today. We will miss him dearly, but we're going to plug on anyway because we're celebrating International Women's Day today. Today's episode title is It's About Time. It's my sentiment on a lot of things we're going to cover. I think we're celebrating some fantastic women here. And for me, it's like, well, some of the things that have happened lately with increasing diversity in film and a lot of areas, well, it's long overdue in my opinion. So hence our title today, It's About Time. Podcast title is, And Then There Were Pod. I played that track because I wanted to talk a little bit about um, maybe just upfront some TV shows that I've noticed on streaming lately that I thought I'd call to your attention if you wanted to check them out as well. Uh, please note I haven't watched any of these, so I cannot vouch for their quality at this time, but they caught my eye, so I thought I would give them a little mention here, and Rob and I might dig into them a little bit later if we find them meaty enough to talk about. So the first one, in keeping with what I just played, is a show called Superman and Lois, and this one's on Binge the streaming service. And it's originally uh, was on the CW network in the US. So that's important because CW has had a, it's sort of doing this thing with DC and they're calling it the Arrowverse. Now I'm not very well in with the Arrowverse. I haven't watched any of these shows, so I'm pretty terrible authority, but Maybe we need to remedy that in the future. So the CW is obviously the home of shows like Riverdale. Smallville was on a network that uh, became one of the networks that then merged. It was on the WB and then that merged to become the CW. So they've got a bit of a history with, you know, comic book stuff going on here. And mainly what they've done lately is they have a suite of shows such as Arrow, hence the name Arrowverse, The Flash, Supergirl, Legends of Tomorrow, Black Lightning and Batwoman. So Batwoman's another new one. Black Lightning is semi-new as well. I think Arrow, The Flash, Supergirl, they've all been around for a little bit of time. So these 
kind of suite of shows of what they're releasing as part of their Arrowverse, which is a CW's take on some of these DC heroes. And the latest one that they've trotted out, which you can find on Binge, is Superman and Lois. Now, from the little I've seen on this, and like I said, I haven't watched any episodes just yet, uh, we return to Smallville, both Clark and Lois, as new parents or parents and with their sons, Jonathan, of course, named I assume for Jonathan Kent, which is Clark's dad, and Jordan. So I think it's a little bit about, you know, how they struggle with parenthood and also I guess juggling some superhuman duties and maybe some relationship stuff in there too. So it'll be interesting to see exactly what they're doing with that. It's kind of a bit of an interesting turn. So there's only one episode of that out at the moment. So I think they're because it's on a normal, what is normal, because it's on a traditional network in the US, you'll be getting one episode at a time. So the first one of that is available on Binge and then we'll be getting episode week to week, I assume. So maybe check that one out and see what's happening there. The other thing I noticed also on Binge was a show called A Discovery of Witches. This is a British show. It's a bit of a fantasy series, and it is based on a book series called The All Souls Trilogy. That's by Deborah Harkness, and this is kind of named after – it's kind of like Game of Thrones. It's named after the first book in that series. Now, they have – just released the second series on binge. It's about 10 episodes. There was a, a, the first season came out like a few years ago now that there was eight episodes in that. So this is season two is kind of the most up-to-date one, but they've got both seasons. They're available on binge and apparently there will be a third season coming. So if you want to dig into that, there's plenty of that there ready for you. All episodes of the first, all episodes of the second series up on Binge. I made sure to check that. So you can have a look and watch all of those if you're interested in a Binge, as per the name suggests. And, yeah, it seems like a bit of a Romeo-Juliet story, you know, star-crossed lovers. I don't think this is giving anything away because I watched the trailer to make sure I wasn't giving anything away, but the premise of the show is vampire loves a witch, it's forbidden, etc. So a bit of a supernatural love story dealio, but also with other stuff in play. And the main draw card for me is the two leads are played by Teresa Palmer, who plays a witch in the story, and Matthew Good, who plays a vampire. So be interesting to see what kind of chemistry these guys have on screen, but I do like Matthew Good, do like Teresa Palmer, so we'll see how that goes. That's British fantasy television series called A Discovery of Witches. The third thing that I wanted to call out just in this little intro package was The Stand. So that's on Amazon Prime, of course, based on the Stephen King book that came out in the late 1970s. It aired on the CBS in the US on that network, but we can get it on Amazon Prime here in Australia. If you don't know much about the story, it might be a little too raw for you, but it is based around a pandemic, bit of a classic good versus evil story. This adaptation does change some of the characters and it's current day setting rather than what was current when King wrote it. So 21st century setting and I think there's a bit of extra content, new King written content, uh, a final episode that he has penned and that is also part of that season. So 
There is nine episodes of that. They're all out now on Amazon Prime. That is The Stand, the long-awaited TV show, long-awaited by me at least. (laughs) So that was just something I wanted to shout out now and see if I get you watching some of those series to see if they're of any interest. Let's take a quick track. I'd like to play Captain Marvel from the Captain Marvel film. This is by the score composed by Pina Toprak. Triple R on FM, digital, online and via the app. That was, of course, Captain Marvel by Pina Toprak. What I wanted to kind of move on to next, given it is International Women's Day, is I wanted to do a bit of a spotlight on some female directors and namely, because this is zero G, I wanted to spotlight some female directors that we will be seeing helming uh, Marvel or Sony slash Marvel, gives you a bit of a teaser of who I'm going to cover, uh, movies in the future, near future, far future both are relevant. So I thought a lot of these directors are of interest to me. I'm going to stop saying female directors because I don't think we need to preface that. They're directors, but I did want to shout out, obviously, these these guys. I wanted to cover these specifically for today. So the first one, so yes, as mentioned, all of these guys will, all of these women will have, uh, they've got some chops behind them, but it'd be interesting to see how they dig into the Marvel universe and how they, how their movies go. So I thought I'd kind of talk a bit about their previous work, what they've done in the past. And uh, if you want to check out some of their other stuff, I think that would be wonderful because they're all amazing directors in the lead up to seeing what they do in terms of the superhero comic book world. So The first director that I wanted to talk a little bit about was Olivia Wilde. So she's mostly prior to a couple of years ago been known for her acting work. So she's an actor as well, but then she's been dabbling in directing for a while. So this is, I follow her on Instagram. So this is something she's done a couple of shorts and I think she's done some music videos and things like that. But her first big meaty film that she directed was Book Smart. So that film came out a couple of years ago and that was one that she, that was her first directing project. And then obviously the project that she's going to be doing soon that's of interest to us is that she was announced to be heading up a Spider-Man, Spider-related film, something from a Sony Marvel suite. So we know it's something Spider-Man-ish and it's going to be a female lead. So that was kind of the big thing, a female-led superhero film. She was going to be helming that up. And then there was a lot of buzz that it would be a Spider-Woman story. So that's kind of where we're at now. We we are assuming that she's doing a Spider-Woman of some shape or form. So obviously we have seen Spider-Woman already in a Sony, the animated Spider-Man Into the Spider-Verse, which is top notch. And that was Gwen Stacy. Uh, as Spider-Woman, and that was voiced by Haley Seinfeld. So I don't know if we're going to be seeing more of a continuation of that, but there's a discussion about, you know, how Sony is it going to be, how Marvel is it going to be. She's mentioned Kevin Feige, 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 mentioned him. So there's hints that it's going to be more of a Tom Holland Spider-Man sort of deal where it's pretty Marvel-y, but Sony also has, you know, they, they're in the background raising their hand saying we're also responsible for this. So it'll be interesting to see what happens there. But let's take a step back and uh, cast our eyes back into Olivia's filmography slash TV work. So she's appeared in some genre stuff of note. Tron Legacy is one of her big pictures. Also, she was in Cowboys and Aliens, and she was in the time-twisting 
Justin Timberlake in time was a, a very interesting film. I think I actually didn't mind that film. She had a small role in that. So those are kind of her genre things that she's been involved in. She, of course, has been on TV and things like House and The OC, and she was also in It's Not Genre, but I'm going to mention it. She was also in uh, Drinking Buddies, which is a film that's one of my favorites, actually. So there was a lot of improvisation in that film, apparently. So she was also in that, and so that's sort of some of her top uh, of note acting uh, accolades, I guess. But uh, on to Booksmart. So this was her big uh, picture that she also co-wrote with Katie Silberman or Katie Silberman wrote it and she directed. And so Booksmart was kind of a coming of age, uh, really, they sort of said it was like a female super bad, but I think in its own right, it was a really funny, a little bit dirty teen comedy so I highly recommend that one. It's not genre, but it's a really solid film. So she directed that and she's, of course, just wrapped filming on another movie called Don't Worry Darling, which falls a little bit more into our camp. So she she teamed up with Katie Silverman again on Don't Worry Darling, and this one is a psychological thriller. It's set in like a community that's really isolated. There's lots of desert. It's set in the 1950s, so it's going to be retro. It's going to be, you know, just a pretty cool, it sounds pretty cool from what I've seen of the behind the scenes and on set photos on her Instagram. Very interested in that one. Famously, she kicked Shia LaBeouf off that production of Don't Worry Darling because she has a no dickheads policy and he is one. So he was replaced by Harry Styles. Not going to get into all of the gossip around that as well. But yes, so she is wrapping up her second film, Don't Worry Darling. And that one also stars Florence Pugh, who we know and love, and Chris Pine, who we've definitely seen recently in Wonder Woman 1984, and also Dakota Johnson is in that too. So very interesting. She's sort of on the up. She's done a couple of things. We don't know heaps about Olivia Wilde's project, what she'll actually be doing, who, you know, it's all very secret. She did tweet a spider emoji when the news was all released, so I think we can safely say that it's Spider-Man-y, Spider-Woman-y. So keep an eye on on that. So that, of course, was our first director that I wanted to have a look at. Now, the second director that I wanted to have a bit of a look at is uh, Chloe Zhao. Now, when I started looking at Chloe Zhao, I was like, I could do a whole show just on Chloe Zhao. That's kind of how meaty and expansive and interesting her approach and her filmmaking and her career to date is and even what she's going to be doing next like we've got a lot to talk about here so let's dig into that okay so Chloe Zhao now she is has directed The Eternals so that film has been much delayed unfortunately so we're not going to be seeing that until I think later this year or even later next year which is a bit of a shame Uh, That one, I'll talk a little bit more about that soon, but that is the Marvel property that she has directed, The Eternals. So she was tapped for that and that is pretty much wrapped. Now let's talk a little bit about Chloe herself. I will say too that I got a lot of my info from a a really good article on Vulture. It was also published in New York Magazine. So that's a really good profile on her and her work. So I'd highly recommend looking at that if you like the sound of Chloe and want to know a little bit more about her. So Chloe Zhao was born Zhao Ting 
and she was born in Beijing and she grew up there for a time until she went to the UK at age 14 to go to boarding school. So she didn't speak much in English until she went over to the UK for that. She did also about the turn of the century go over to the US to Los Angeles to go to high school. Uh, so she has spent a bit of time in the US and she eventually did go to film school uh, at New York University. So one of her big things that is kind of notable about her films is that she works a lot with what I'm going to say in air quotes is non-professional actors or untrained actors or something of that effect because I guess the argument was made that if they're working, they are professional actors. But I guess not your traditionally trained actors. They do act in these films for the most part, but they are probably more in situ. So she might meet them in these situations in these towns and they're not traditionally uh, acting or pursuing acting careers necessarily, but then they appear in these films for her. So this is something, this kind of approach is something that she came to when she was working right after she finished film school. She went back to China to start making some films and have a bit of a go there. And she ended up in some, one of her projects, finding some real dancers in China that she wanted to work with who would act in her film. And I think she, after spending a little bit of time in China, then kind of came back to the US and started thinking about what her first film would be. And so there was a lot of ideas thrown around and she knew she really wanted to make a film about uh, a specific reservation, uh, a American Indian Reservation in South Dakota. So she spent a lot of time there in the community trying to think about her approach and what the story would be. And unfortunately what happened was she'd done a lot of preparation and some shot some footage and that was all stolen from uh, her apartment and she then had to improvise and she had a much smaller budget to work with then because everything had been taken. So she had small budget she had to think a little bit about how she was going to do the film now because all of her plans and everything she was going to do was kind of thrown up in the air after this happened. And so then she, yeah, kind of realized that, oh, okay, I want to go out. I'm going to have a small crew. I don't have much money. I'm going to go and then I'm going to make this film. Every morning she would actually write the scene that was going to be shot that day and it would all be very flexible. So it would kind of build on things that had happened previously. It would build on things she'd seen in the area things the actors came to her with. It was all a very kind of uh, collaborative approach and she was very on the go. So this would turn out to be the film Songs My Brothers Taught Me, which received a lot of acclaim. And she actually then also started this tradition or this professional arrangement where she would make sure that anyone who acted in her films, because they're not a traditional actor per se, that they would receive a share of profits uh, that the movie, like kind of like royalties, I suppose. So she always has this very in mind, the people in her films and, you know, I guess an approach of trying not to take advantage of them, I suppose. She really shot to fame more and received more acclaim in 2017 when she released her next film, The Rider, where she kind of hones this approach. This, again, was a film that she funded herself, didn't have a very big budget, had a very small crew. She had a very kind of specific vision but a flexible approach. So she worked with a specific uh, actor. The film's star was Brady Jandro, and he plays a character in the film called Brady, Brady Blackburn. But the story is very closely based on something that happened to the real Brady. And it's about horse trainers and 
people who compete in rodeos and so on. And she kind of met these people and stumbled upon, upon this whole situation in rodeos and horse riding and that whole life. So she really found this story, heard a bit about Brady. He had had this accident and then he would continue to ride, even though it might endanger his life. And so she really liked that story and wanted to tell that in her film. And so that was kind of the premise of the rider. And that film was very well received, did the festival circuit. Frances McDormand saw it, loved it, and then wanted to talk to her, to Chloe Zhao about doing a project that Frances McDormand had the rights to. So she had the rights to a book called Nomadland, Surviving America in the 21st Century. So it was a nonfiction book and it's about um, kind of grey nomads, uh, older people in the US who kind of drive around in their Winnebago's and find work where they can and go to, they're very transient. And it's sort of as a uh, it's a, as a reaction to capitalist uh, being pushed out of mainstream work and things like that. So this idea was something Frances McDormand was interested in, and she went to Chloe with this idea after seeing her work in The Rider, which she really liked. And then, obviously, as you probably know, Nomadland is in cinemas now. Uh, they did make that film together. So Frances McDormand starred in Nomadland. And it was similar areas of the U.S. that they were, it was shot in. So it was throughout uh, California, Nebraska, Nevada, and South Dakota again, which is where her first film, Songs My Brothers Taught Me, was set. Deep U.S. (laughs) areas and stories. I thought that was a really nice quote that Chloe mentioned when she was talking a little bit about the film, when some people said that it wasn't, didn't have a political message. And she was like, well, actually, it's pretty socialist. Uh, And she does say, If you look deeply, the issue of elder care as a casualty of capitalism is on every frame. It's just, yes, there's a beautiful sunset behind it. So I thought that was really interesting because it does look like a very beautiful film and the story is quite poignant, but I do think it is making quite a salient point. So then we kind of cut to uh, what she's working on now or what she has wrapped now, which is The Eternals for Marvel, and that's based on the Jack Kirby uh, Eternal series. So that was in the seventies that that was done. And also, so she kind of has made this jump, but from doing these very tight focused character pieces, and then now she's doing this kind of big budget film. And so there was a lot of buzz about, you know, Chloe, how are you going to be able to do it? How are you going to take the transition is, you know, blah, 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 blah. But she did mention, I think there's also been a bit of talk about you know, people really love her films and they love her approach and and they sort of see her doing something like The Eternals as a real shift. Uh, But she, I read an interview which I thought was very interesting where she speaks about how she really wanted to tackle a big story like this. She is a big fan of manga and she didn't get to watch a lot of films growing up because she grew up in China, but she really loved sort of the Uh, manga stuff that she was reading and she says I have this quote here I have been a fan of the MCU for the last decade so I put the word out there that I wanted to make a Marvel movie and the right project came to me and she also does mention how she wanted to work with the Marvel team and again she really wanted to do it in her style so she wanted to do the world her way and that includes a lot of on-set action a lot of filming things on location not as much CG as might otherwise happen. And so there's a lot of that. And so she sort of has mentioned in a lot of interviews that, yep, I'm doing this big budget film, but I'm going to do it my way. And they're fine with that. And we've talked about it and this is my approach. So she said that the film The Revenant (laughs) with our fave Leo DiCaprio and the bear, that she took a lot of cues from that because she wanted to do a lot of this 
on location action and how could she do that and how could she make that work and how would it look and feel? And she said that she thinks it is going to look and feel quite different because of the way she approaches it and her style. And she also says that she loves Star Wars and that, you know, she really likes the idea of building a rich world and seeing how she can do it. And I'll read the quote. That's why I love Star Wars. There is a world that is so rich. I wanted to enter it and see what I can do. Can I put a spin on it while still being true to the essence of it? That's exciting to me. And apparently she did when she was casting for Eternals uh, that she picked everybody because she wanted those, she thought that those characters were like those actors and she just wanted people to come in and sort of play a little bit of themselves. I thought that was kind of cool too. So I thought that was very interesting looking at her take on the Eternals and why she wanted to do that project. And then we kind of now let's leap into what she's going to be doing next, which is, uh, what's the description of it? It's a futuristic sci-fi Western interpretation of Dracula for Universal's kind of monster movie reboot thing that they're doing. So because they did the Invisible Man and they're doing a Wolfman and they're going to do a Dracula helmed by Chloe. And I think that's pretty cool. I love the idea of a sci-fi Western. So I'm very in for that. I think one of the things that's interesting is I was doing a bit of research on this and I know Marvel is making a real effort to get more diversity in their suite of directors and for female-led stories. They really want female directors. Uh, There's a filmmaker called Lucrecia Martel and she was saying that she was originally being considered to direct Black Widow, a job which eventually went to Kate Shortland, who we'll get to in a minute. So Zhao, Chloe Zhao is actually also up for that. But I thought it was interesting. And this is, I'm not trying to slight Marvel here, but I think this is a very much where we need to think about shifting the mindset a little is apparently they said to Lucriana Martel, who was in contention with this Black Widow job, uh, that they wanted a female director because they want someone who would be concerned with developing Black Widow's character, so Natasha's character. And then they also said, don't worry about the action. We'll take care of that. And she said, apparently, she's like, well, I'd love to meet Scarlett, but I'd also love to make the action sequences. And I think that's it. It's directors come in and maybe they're out of their comfort zone. But I don't know. Do we say to Duncan Jones, don't worry about the Warcraft action scenes. We'll take care of that. Like, yeah, it's very much about if you want female directors to come in and and do what they do, just come in and let them tackle it the way they would want. That's Chloe Zhao. So she's directed The Eternals and she's also done Nomadland and The Rider are two of her top films. Highly recommend checking those out. We'll wait in anticipation for when we can finally see The Eternals, which I'm celebrating for more than one reason because it's diversity in a lot of ways and I'm really happy to see such a diverse cast, a lot of Asian representation and very keen to see what Zhao does now and into the future. So next, I've only got a a short spiels about two other directors that I kind of just wanted to bring to mind before we take a little music break because I've been talking for a while and talk about our next topic. So I'll just mention these guys quickly, though, before we head into our music break. So the first one is uh, Kate Shortland, who helmed the much-anticipated, long-awaited, when will we get to see it, (laughs) Black Widow. So she's, of course, an Australian director, and I'm familiar with Kate Shortland because she directed Somersault, which back in my day was the moody teen film to watch because it was set in Jindabyne, which is near my hometown, Canberra. It had this kind of, you know, very navel-gazing soundtrack that was by Dakota Ring. It had Abby Cornish in it, and she was kind of the actress of the moment. So she directed that, Somersault. And then she's done a couple of other things, which I actually, to be perfectly honest, have not seen of Shortland. So 
I don't know why I'm calling her Shortland and I called Chloe Chloe the whole time, but let's just roll with it. I've got no Rob here to pull me up on anything, guys. I'm just rolling with the punches. <laughs> I'm just out on the loose. So Kate Shortland also has done a couple of other ones that were both set in Europe. So the first one is... <laughs> I'm also sorry that I went into such an in-depth examination of Chloe Zhao's kind of background and her approach to filmmaking, and I'm giving such a short rundown on these other directors, but I also think Chloe Zhao has uh, a film out at the moment, so I found a lot of good info on her, uh, kind of because she's doing the press circuit right now. But anyway, enough with my sad excuses. Uh, Law, so she did, Kate Shortland did a film called Law, set in Germany. It's a post-World War II. It's about a family. It's about a young girl whose father was a Nazi or is a Nazi or, you know, is guilty of Nazism and kind of the fallout post-World War II. So not really an upper. And she also did another film called Berlin Syndrome with the aforementioned Teresa Palmer, I'm pretty sure. And that was kind of a locked room psychological thriller where a girl hooks up with a guy and then the guy takes her captive and it's kind of, you know, Berlin Syndrome, as you would suggest, it's a bit of a captor-captive kind of thing. So she, and then, yeah, tip for this. I would imagine maybe because they're going for a bit of the European thrillery spy energy for Black Widow. I don't know. Haven't seen it. When am I going to get to see this film? So that's Kate Shortland. I would recommend Somersault if you haven't seen it. I really liked it. I don't know if it holds up. It's been a while. Lastly, the person I wanted to spotlight, who unfortunately I haven't seen anything of and is really up and coming, is Nia DaCosta. So she's going to be directing Captain Marvel's sequel. And she does have a horror movie that's meant to be released soon, but coronavirus is just holding everything up. So it's an adaptation of Candyman, which is very cool. It's a sequel, apparently, to the original 90s horror movie. But kind of into that. She also did another film in... 2018 with Tessa Thompson, love her. Lily James, also love her. They've both talked about both those women recently. So a crime drama called Little Woods. I have not seen it. I hadn't heard of it at all. No idea what it is. But she apparently has then caught the eye. She caught the eye of Jordan Peele. And it's because Jordan Peele produced that. So he kind of tapped her to direct that. So I had a look at the trailer for Candyman. Highly recommend you check that out, especially if you're a horror fan. It looks very much like a slasher pick. I wouldn't be surprised if there's some extra uh, social commentary going on as well. And it looks pretty darn cool. And there's a really good music drop in the trailer. So have a look at that. Really hoping to see that because I would be into a Candyman sequel. Nia DaCosta. So she directed that and will be directing the Captain Marvel sequel. Okay. So a little bit all over the place there. I apologize. (laughs) But basically what I wanted to do was kind of call out that these directors are not only helming up some stuff that we're very excited about here on Zero G, but they've got decent stuff under their belt or things to be excited for that are coming out soon. And I think it would be great if you haven't seen some of these films, check them out, um, support the just good directors, solid directors. These these are all really great directors who have made incredible films. And I have to say, Chloe Zhao especially, I think, is one to watch. So check out some of her other films if you have not. So let's take a break. I've been talking too much. And uh, we're going to prep for our next segment and listen to a little piece of music from the Murder on the Orient Express film adaptation that came out a couple of years ago, the Branner one. So we're going to listen to a track from that. That was originally, uh, this score is composed by Patrick Doyle. So let's listen to a track from that now. 
This is China Mievel, author of The City and the City, and you're listening to Zero G on 3 Triple R FM, Melbourne. Yes, it is Zero G. I am Megan McHugh. We don't have a Rob Jan today because I am covering the show. <laughs> I spoke for about 20 minutes straight with no music break. Uh, I am covering the show today because it is International Women's Day. I hope everyone out there is having a really good day and doing something to support the women in your lives, women in your lives, uh, or the workplace or wherever you are. Let's take a, take a moment to think about how we can do our bit. Anyway, okay, let's move on. So I played that because what I want to talk about now for our second half of the show is lately on Zero G, <clears throat> so Rob and I have been doing uh, we covered the Miss Fisher Chinese reboot, Miss S, recommend that. Uh, we also did a little while ago Scarlet and the Duke, covered uh, a really great book called The Devil in the Dark Water by Stuart Turton, which is another kind of Sherlocky murder mystery vibe and um, a gothic fiction. I did a gothic fiction recently called Mexican Gothic as well. So anyway, murder's been on our mind. And of course, with our recent tribute to Christopher Plummer as well, I've been thinking I have to rewatch Knives Out. Absolutely. Like ASAP. So in that, with that in mind, I was thinking, oh, what would I like to do for the show? Obviously, I think it would be something to really um, highlight you know, I don't know, highlight something that's appropriate in theme with the day. Like let's not do a retrospective of all the old white men who've written books. So I thought let's talk about an old white woman <laughs> and uh, talk about one of my authors close to my heart, Agatha Christie. So that was a very long lead up to me saying I'm going to talk a bit about Agatha Christie now because we're into murder mysteries <laughs> on Zero G. So growing up I watched a lot of murder she wrote. I read Agatha Christie, loved her mysteries. Some of the ones I'm going to mention I actually haven't read for a while, so I'm sorry if they don't hold up. But in my mind, these are kind of some of her top titles. So I, this might be old news for you if you're a big Christie fan and you've read them all and you're like, Megan, you cracked. These aren't even the best ones. But in my opinion, these are solid mystery stories. I mean, yes, they're maybe not as complex as some of the stuff you get out there, but they're good little solid fun mysteries. And to be honest, a lot better than some of the thrillers that I've read lately that are on the New York Times bestseller list. So what I do is if you haven't read much Christie, take a note of these. These are a good like starter pack and otherwise maybe revisit these if you're a big Christie fan and haven't read them for a while like me. So I think I'm going to actually revisit some of these because I haven't read them for a bit. So anyway, let's dig into our first one. Enough yapping. Well, enough of that kind. Let's dig into the first one that I want to recommend, which is The Murder of Roger Ackroyd. So this was, I think, one of her early Poirot novels. I think maybe the third one that featured our famous, famous detective, Belgian detective. Uh, it was written in the 1920s, of course, because Agatha Christie is from the days of yore, something which is very obvious in the next book we're going to cover. Not that that's an excuse, uh, but back to this one, Murder of Roger Ackroyd. So our basic premise for this story, which I don't want to talk too deeply about why it's interesting in terms of her style and why it differs and what is surprising about it, let's say, because I think that will obviously give away the ending. And if you haven't read this, it's best to go in quite uh, ignorant, let's say. So Poirot, he does the old J. 
Jessica Fletcher tries to go to a small town and just live his life and enjoy having a break or having some time off. So he's been solving mysteries already. So I think he did the mysterious affair at Styles by this point. And so he is now has moved to a small town called King's Abbott Fictional and in England, fictional English town, King's Abbott, where he would like to just, you know, garden and potter about and trim his moustache and whatnot. But he's foiled. This plan to relax is foiled by a murder. So, and it's very curious murder. So he has to kind of figure out what has happened to, I mean, the person murdered, I think is right there in the title. It's Roger Ackroyd. So Roger Ackroyd lives in the small town. He has a big prop, like a big, I guess, mansion or whatever, manor. And, you know, there's a cast of characters and townsfolk that come through and play different roles in kind of the happenings of the town. But at the end of the day, yes, he was murdered. We don't know how he's been found. What on earth has gone on? Now there's, um, it's told from the perspective of Dr. Shepard. So Dr. Shepard lives in the town also, and he kind of uh, is a bit of a sidekick as Poirot investigates and kind of follows along and, and helps him out and so on. So it's we've got a kooky cast of characters. We've got an unlikely situation. So we have to kind of go along and figure out what happened that night. So basically, you know, there's kind of a disappearance and um, Roger Ackroyd's trying to figure out what on earth happened here. And then, you know, sadly he gets it himself. So it's a, it's a classic murder in a small town. We kind of follow along as little clues are dropped and red herrings are sprinkled all over the place. And it's kind of a classic story, but I think it's, it's very well done and memorable for a couple of different reasons, which I won't go into. It was adapted into a radio play, a one hour radio play that had Orson Welles in it, which I thought was pretty cool playing Poirot. And I think he plays Shepard as well, actually. So that one I would definitely recommend, The Murder of Roger Ackroyd. I did actually read uh, another book. I can't remember the exact title. I should have looked this up, but I've just thought of it. It's unpicking the mystery and proposing a different solution. So it was written ages later and it's like, oh, this is my take on it and this is how this is actually what happened. So that's kind of interesting. You could look that up if you like as well. But that one, The Murder of Roger Ackroyd, highly recommend that classic Christie story, small town small town murder. Okay. Now let's cut to another of her well-known books, which has a seedy history, which I didn't really know about. I didn't really realize a lot about this title because I just read it, enjoyed the story. I read, there were a few bits in the story of language that I, I hope in current editions has been omitted and changed. The second book I'm going to talk about is, and then there were none. And Then There Were None is probably one of my favorite books of all time because I think it's a very, very solid mystery and it ticks all of my boxes when it comes to what I like in a mystery. So it's kind of a bottle mystery where they're all stuck in one place. We've got a very discreet list of characters and then things just keep escalating, escalating, escalating. And then we have a very interesting conclusion to the mystery. So what makes this a bit different to some of other Chris, of Christie's other work is that there's no detective. It's kind of just a story about a bunch of murders and you have to kind of follow along and figure out what's going on. So Poirot isn't there, Marple isn't there. We're all just stuck on this misty, isolated island. It's off the Devon coast. I'm not even sure where that is. I mean, it's in England, but like, so you're off remote island, off the coast. It's stormy, I'm pretty sure. And so eight people arrive on this island. They've all received a note that's, you know, come to this deserted island. I'm expecting you. So they all go, I mean, this never happens anymore. So they all trot along to this island 
and then there's two people on the island who are kind of the, the help there, I guess, like a butler and a cook. And they're like, hey, come in. Hosts aren't here. Sorry. This is all very much like Clue the movie. Sorry, you know, here's, here's all our instructions. And then there's a bunch of mysterious instructions and weird things there. But these eight people arrive. They've all got their rooms on this island. And then we learn a little bit from everybody's perspective, like who these people are. Gradually, they get picked off one by one. I don't think that's a spoiler. It's a murder mystery story. So they've got our 10 people, our eight guests, and the two people that work there. And then we've kind of got to figure out what's going on before, you know, and then there were none. Now, what's interesting about this one is its original title was very, 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 very offensive. And it was based on a very, very, very offensive rhyme. And the name of the island in the very offensively titled book was offensive. The rhyme inside the offensively titled book was offensive. And so they changed it to a less offensive, but still offensive version which I'll say because I think that's that one is okay like to, to, to mention. They changed it from the original very, very offensive name to in the rhyme to Indians, which is still not great. And then in the final, I think now it's Ten Little Soldiers. So there's a rhyme and they've rewritten the rhyme from its horrible origins to something palatable that still works with the story. And because of this rhyme and the premise of the rhyme, that's kind of how she built the whole the island and the title of the book. But obviously that doesn't really fly. So it's it's interesting. So it was released in the UK with title A, the bad title, and then it was released almost at the same time, maybe like a year later in the US with And Then There Were None because in the US they went, we absolutely, like, no, we cannot print this. So someone, and then uh, it took a really long time for the UK to get on board and change all the details to something that was more generic and not horrifically offensive. I think it was until the 60s there were still books in circulation with that original terrible title. It is one of the best-selling mysteries. Uh, it's sold like over 100 million copies. It's a really a best-selling book. And I think, you know, there's probably obviously copies of the horrible version out there, but I think now it's all uh, they've they've scrubbed out all of the offensive material in, in more recently printed editions. Although the one I read definitely still had some language in there that was uh, off color. I mean, Christy wasn't that well. She wasn't really well known for her her well balanced approach to race. So uh, seek out a copy of it, and then there were none. And it is just a really interesting story. I think I'll read it again. As I mentioned before, you kind of just got to roll along with the mystery, try to figure out what happened. Uh, there's no detective that you're following along with, but I think it's just really well set up and it's quite tense. Uh, it's a premise that I've read in similar thrillers more recently. Um, Lucy Foley has done a couple of kind of more contemporary thrillers. There's one called The Guest List where everybody is called to an island for a wedding. Then there's a murder and you kind of go through different perspectives and try and figure out what happened. She has another book called The Hunting Party, which is practically the same premise, but it's on like a uh, like a house in the Scottish Highlands that, you, you know, it's basically everybody gets called to one place and then they can't leave. And then people either start dying one by one or, you know, disappearing or what have you. So, and then there were none, good solid Christie title, would highly recommend despite its off-colour history. So the last book that I would like to mention, I hope I covered that okay. <laughs> anyway, the third book I would like to mention is Murder on the Orient Express. This is probably her most famous, well-known, I guess you would say, book. 
it's been adapted many times. It's the first book I ever had. I got it in one of those, you get those magazines week by week. It was like an, a mystery one. And each week you'd get a different Agatha Christie book. Murder on the Orient Express was the first one. And so I had this really cool hardcover copy. Uh, she wrote that in 1934. Uh, it has had a recent adaptation uh, in 2017, the Kenneth Branagh adaptation, which I played a track from earlier. That track was actually Orient Express Suite. I don't think I mentioned by Patrick Doyle. It was adapted also many times, TV, movies, plays, etc., etc. So they're also doing a Death on the Nile, the Branagh kind of suite of Poirot's Death on the Nile. I don't know what's happening with that now that Army Hammer is going taken a fall from grace. But moving along, this one is a Poirot story based, I'll tell you, but I'm sure you know, based on a train, 1930s, trains get stopped, big surprise, no one can leave, another surprise. I guess we're getting some themes here. But there's a murder and then Poirot kind of uh, has to figure out what has happened. And there's, again, another crazy cast of characters to interrogate and I think it's it's also infamous because of the conclusion or the, the answer to the mystery as well. What I thought was interesting was there's actually been a Japanese adaptation of this called Orient Kyuko Satsujin Jiken. Jiken. Mm. A Japanese adaptation which aired on Fuji TV and it was just they massaged bits of it. It was set in Japan in 1930s and instead of going, you know, the Orient Express route, it went from Shimonoseki to Tokyo and there was a similar avalanche and so on. So I kind of thought I might seek that out because I think that would be actually a very interesting version to watch. But yes, set on a train, it's glamorous, it's there's secrets, it's it's a really good solid mystery. There's the reason why I think it's as most well known. And because of the setting, I think it really lends itself to cool adaptations and creativity. So I think that's part of why Murder on the Orient Express has had a lot of it's lived a long life and had many revivals, so to speak. <laughs> Uh, so that was three titles that I just wanted to shout out. There are a, a couple of Triple others R. that I, of Christie's that I've enjoyed, but those would be the top three if I was going to say to someone who hadn't read any Christie to check them out. I think you'll get a sense they're actually all quite different in the style and approach, but I think they're all quite solid. So that was my little retrospective on Agatha Christie's work. Hope you enjoy or get an idea of something that you might want to reread. Now we're going to go out with a track today. And in keeping with our theme, I was trying to really find a good Bowie track and what track could we do. So I settled on Strangers When We Meet from the album Outside. Now, I picked this not just because Bowie and Eno come back together again. Uh, it's also because there's like, he's got this whole concept for it. So there's like a dystopian world. It's about to go into the 21st century. And he wrote this story that goes in the liner notes. Remember liner notes? And it's about gothic uh, you know, futuristic, dystopian, 1999. Uh, there's all these art crimes and there's a bureau that investigates them and you know, there's this art craze of murder and bodies and stuff and that's kind of the art. And so what's art and what's not and there's murder and there's mystery and then there's also all these different complicated events and so on and so forth. So I was like, okay, well, this is my very slim link to what Bowie track I'm going to play. So I'm going to select a track from this outside album. So as I mentioned, I went with Strangers When We Meet. So let's 
listen to that now. I feel like the show has whipped by and I have talked a lot. I did miss missed you, Rob. Uh, it is nice to have someone to bounce off and give, give you <laughs> a second opinion, but I hope uh, I gave you some information that you didn't know before or something, a movie or a book to check out. And I think there's so much wonderful stuff out there that's been created by women. I think that uh, we should support that. And I'm glad that I could talk about some of my favorite things today uh, on International Women's Day. And Rob and I will be back next week. This has been Zero G. I'm Megan McHugh. G'day, this is Rob Jan. Thanks for listening to the podcast of Triple R's Zero G, a weekly radio show exploring science fiction, fantasy and historical. Zero G is broadcast live on Triple R from Melbourne, Australia every Monday. Hope you enjoy the podcast and feel free to get in touch with us via our Facebook page or the Triple R website.